Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today, we are on the phone with Maya Ward, and she is across the world from where I am, and I'm across the world from where she is. She is in Australia, outside of Melbourne. Maya Ward was born in and has lived most of her life in Yarra River country. She has worked as an urban designer, permaculture teacher, an environmental educator, public art designer, musician, performer, festival director, poet, and writer. She now divides her time between inner city Brunswick and planting trees on her block by the Yara in Warburton. Welcome, Maya. We um, we we met uh, at a table in the farmers market in Santa Fe while you were while you were here, and uh, you generously gave me your book, and it's a beautiful book. It's called The Comfort of Water, A River Pilgrimage. The Comfort of Water. Maya, tell us about this river that I had no idea existed. Well, it's on on first glance not a very substantial or impressive river. In fact, it's been teased quite a lot because it's often a very muddy looking water. Um, It's the reason, the Yarra River is the reason why the city of Melbourne exists because the city of Melbourne was built on the banks of the Yarra, not far from the bay of Port Port Phillip Bay and um, they situated the city of Melbourne there back in 1835 because the water was fresh and you could drink it. Um, just down from the, that location, there was a waterfall and it was an estuary below that. Um, so that's the reason why Melbourne is there. So I grew up in inner city Melbourne. And I would spend time as a child exploring it and um, different parks and little remnant um, vegetation areas and um, I lived on the river a few times and I canoed on the river and just loved this place and um, wanted to know more. And that's the origin, really, of my journey, the idea of walking from the sea to the source of the river. I didn't know where it started. I knew where it ended because I'd grown up right on the bay and um, not far from where the Yarra enters enters the sea. So that was the origin, really, of my um, my interest 
the idea of going on an epic journey, but right in the heart of where I lived. The Yarra is a very, has, has been a cultural landscape for a very, very long time because this is the home of the Kulin Nation and the Wurundjeri Tribe and the Bunurong Tribe. So 40,000 years of um, culture has resided along the banks of the river. The most important landscape feature really for the tribes around here. And people have been walking back and forth along the river for many, many thousands of years. Very, very ancient tracks. But since the European invaders came along and fenced it off and cut down the the trees and built a city, there hasn't been access along the length of the river, not for Aboriginal people, not for um, any, any people. So our journey was a bit, was inspired really by the, the cultural imperative here in Australia for reconciliation, to appreciate, understand, respect and acknowledge the First Peoples what we sometimes call ourselves as owning the land. So yes, um, it was a journey taken in the spirit of reconciliation. Maya, could you give us um, a little his story here and um, clue us in about at what time did the did the invaders come in? And who was living, I'm sorry to be so ignorant, but I feel it needs to be said, who was living on the banks, discovered the banks of this, this the, discovered this river, and who was living on the river, and uh, who, the, who are these first people? Well, as I said, they are members of the which is a confederation of tribes, um, there were two main tribes who lived along the banks of the Yarra River. The Wurundjeri people and the Bunurong, and not lived, they still do, because their descendants still live in Melbourne, and um, the land here was never never given up, it was never sold, it was stolen, and our culture is very slow to recognise that, but it's, it is definitely starting to, which is an exciting cultural moment, really. So we're at a period of time where people are learning about the Indigenous history, which is not something that happened when I was in school. We learn absolutely nothing to um, the shame of the education system. So change is happening in, in acknowledging those first peoples. One very interesting thing is Europeans sailed up the river and decided um, to face a village, as they call it, on the Yarra River in 1835, they, the average height of the men in the crew was about five foot four, which is my height, you know, the average height of a woman mm-hmm. now, but back then, 100, 180 years or so, um, men were much shorter because of the, the nourishment levels, really, back in the countries where they come from, England and... Ireland and Scotland and so forth. The average height of the Wurundjeri people who they encountered was six foot four. So that's a whole foot 
than um, the invaders. And that was due to their, their nourishment. It's our very rich lands along the banks of the river. There were lots of what we call billabongs, swamps and wetlands that would um, seal and drain um, over the season. And um, they would hunt for um, kangaroo and emu, wallaby, wombat. Uh, they would fish. They would fish for eels and seals and um, lots of other fish that lived in the river, and as well as lots of um, very lots of plant foods. So that's a little bit about the story. And they um, they had extraordinarily rich and complex cultural life that was almost entirely invisible to the Europeans who who arrived in the 1830s because their oral culture and their culture was a a storytelling culture. So their their knowledge, their their maps, their history, their books, their stories were in oral tales. And some some people over, some of your listeners may have heard of the term songline. A songline is um, it's like a map in in song. So people would be able to navigate and negotiate themselves along through hundreds of kilometres of what to the Europeans would seem, you know, featureless landscape. Right. Because the the maps were encoded in um, songs that would be sung as people walked along the rivers and um, other parts of the, the land. Yarra River was a song line and, you know, still is really, it's just not sung now. Um, so my, um, I have strong associations with some of the local Wurundjeri people and they, um, before I set out on my pilgrimage, they wanted me to know that the river is a song line and to keep this in mind and to respect this um, ancient history of this land. Can you go deeper into telling us how you experienced that the river is a song line? Well, I'm not sure that I... On, on some level I can, and on some level there's absolutely no way I can do that because I'm Western person of European descent... My ancestors have been here for, you know, since about the 1870s or so. Mm-hmm. But that's a relatively short amount of time. And our culture now um, has very little close connection with the land as a source of sustenance, um, physical sustenance in, the, in terms of food and spiritual sustenance. Mm-hmm. And those two things could never be separated in a traditional culture because Food comes from the land, um, food is part of the land, food is part of the culture. Um, so, so a song line is um, a very, very complex interweaving layers and layers of traditional people, meaning and information. It's sort of exact scientific information about the best place to to hunt or to collect food, but um, 
way to, from my understanding, and my understanding can only be from the outside of the culture, of course, mm. from my understanding, the way people understood food and um, their culture was so inextricably combined and inter- interwoven with the notion of ancestors and spirits, spirits and um, and God. So, so the stories that were told were stories of um, you know a- ancestor ancestor. Came- um, the great creator Bunjil, the wedge-tailed eagle. Um, so these stories were so uh, were interwoven into the place. So when you saw a plant, when you were walking along the river and you encounter a landform, or a gorge, or mountains, or big lakes, or billabongs. These places were entwined with stories of the ancestors. Now, the, almost all of those stories have been lost. The tragedy of, um, you know, colonisation, and even if there wasn't active violence, and there was some active violence here, but not an enormous amount compared to some parts in Australia. But spread of diseases meant that four fifths of the tribes of people around here died within the first 20 years. So without the stories, without the old people to tell those stories, the culture, the culture is lost. But this is what is, was very interesting for me because when I walked the river, you know, mindfully and respectfully when I followed the river all day, every day, for three weeks, so 22 days, mm-hmm. keeping by the water, listening to the water, being attentive of my place, I definitely felt things that I'd never felt before. And this is not some supernatural thing. This is simply about paying attention to nature. Spend most of their time indoors, in front of screens or books, um, we're not deep inside the natural world. So for me to spend that time, and we spent a lot of time swimming in the river, even though it wasn't super warm, sometimes we'd need to cross over the river to get to the other side to keep walking. So we'd be 7am in the pouring rain, taking all our clothes off, putting them in dry bags, and um, swimming across the river to get to the other side. This intimate relationship that we developed, this um, relationship of necessity, we weren't choosing where to walk. We were following the path. We were following the river, the river's old, old wisdom. So something about that deep immersion opened me to a sense of wonder, unlike anything I'd ever experienced, a sense of um, deep wisdom in the land, a sense of extraordinary presence. And that presence was somehow manifested for me through sound. There was a quality in the air that my presence with this ancient landscape evoked for me. It's very hard to describe. 
but I, I had a, a tiny, you know, maybe one, 1%, 1% of 1% hinting glimpse into what a sun landscape would mean when all your culture is contained in the land and in story. It's very hard for me to... Somehow it uh, reminds me of um, one time when uh, I had taken psychedelic medicine and I went walking and I came across a bridge that had been built a long, long time ago, hundreds of years ago. And I could, I could feel, see the whole history of the people. The whole, the story of the people was contained in this wall over in on this bridge, over this little river. So you're you're somehow feeling it through sound. Sort of reminds me of that. Well, I think something that I actually wrote about in the book was the, the sort of natural and gentle trance state that walking evokes. So we walked for, you know, many miles every day. And there was, I walked with three friends, so there were four of us. And when you walk with a group of people over a long time, you very naturally walk in step, you walk in rhythm. So it always sounded like there was just one person walking Your feet create a rhythm. And then the birds are singing, the river is alongside us singing her song. There was a, there's a natural music in the land, but it's more vibrational nature of all life. When you've got that sort of gentle, altered state, there's a sense of widening one's perceptual gateways, if that makes any sense mm-hmm. at all. Um, Definitely. Uh, Stephen Booner, an amazing author from New Mexico writes very beautifully about that. I recommend his books about how um, through that sort of gentle trance state, our senses were opened, you know, the um, attunement to the land was increased. So for me, these are not things to talk about as supernatural or as above or as strange or uncanny. They are just a natural part of being most human and um, skills that have been working with for many, many thousands of years. Um, an achievement that's absolutely necessary for hunter-gatherer people. So the Wurundjeri were hunter-gatherers. They didn't sow crops. They didn't have many permanent villages, although there's there's the thoughts that there were some permanent settlements. People walked through the land, they hunted, they had to be so aware. And that awareness of, um, so awareness of plants, awareness of animals, uh, awareness of the, the qualities of the river, these are just natural and very beautiful um, and essential some parts of being a human that the modern world has obscured. But, you know, humans have been 
come together as uh, 99.99% of all their history. So these qualities are very close to the surface if we give them the chance to breathe, really. So you were sent off uh, with the ancestors, blessed by this woman uh, yes. who spoke about the ancestors, yes. and I want to, I want to say, uh, did you feel that you were walking both with your European ancestors and the ancestors of the original first people of the place? out what your comment a little bit we had a, a launch for our walk down by the bay um, at the at the junction of bay and uh, a local Wurundjeri woman came down and um, gave us her blessings for our journey and she um, she asked that um, the spirits of the ancestors walk with us and that was a very poignant moment because um, I know it's I know there's lots of similarities for you with Native um, Native Americans, but the the history uh, has been so um, bloody and so full of betrayals and um, and cruelties. So the generosity and the trust in us um, evoked by her words meant an enormous amount to us. So we set off um, with that immediately that I needed to take that very seriously. May the spirits of the ancestors walk with us. So to imagine the ancestors, so specifically the Wurundjeri ancestors of that place. In terms of my European ancestors, well, that was that was a given because. Um, as I said, my um, my family's been here back to my great great grandparents, and so my grandmother would tell me many stories about this land from a long time ago, and you know stories from my parents. So as I walked along the river, so it was um, a journey of about two hundred miles, and so many of the places that I'd walked to, I them up in one walking thread. So I would land in a place and I would have memories and I would, the, the memories of my European ancestors would, would arise naturally in, in places. So it was, a, it was an amazing journey into, into the past too because we would go from very built up areas, so the main big city of Melbourne, a city of four million people or so, big CBD, uh, downtown you call it, city um, right on the riverbanks and then we'd head out into um, parks, farmlands and then finally tall forest, um, national park, places where there are no people, places preserved for um, the animals and the wildlife. And so it was really, as we walked, we, we stepped back into time, walking into very different places, very different ways of being. Now, if that answers your question. <laughs> How uh, did you write the book? Did you write it? Did you take notes as you went along? Well, I, I wrote it. Um, I wrote it. Um, I wrote it. Um, 
and then write it when you settled again how how did you um how did you actually do it okay well i can say this the journey um and when i once i had i realized it was something that was very important to me and it's something i needed to do at that time i wasn't a writer and i had very little interest in writing i just was going for go, um, going along for a journey I was studying at the time and I wanted to record of my adventure, so I definitely took lots of notes. But it was really only um, when I was pretty much at the end of my journey that I realised that I had to write a book. It wasn't... um, I had to share the experience. It was so powerful for me, so profound, um, that writing seemed the only art form complex enough to do it justice. And so I used the notes that I'd taken along the way, and as I wasn't a writer and I hadn't any training, it took me a really long time to work out how to write well enough to convey the experience, because I could have just given a fairly cut-and-dry response um, recording of my, my trek, but it wouldn't have conveyed... So how to write in a way that conveyed the magic, well, that was my my quest. I don't know how well I succeeded in that, but I've certainly... Um, the book's done well here in Australia, and people have really enjoyed the fact that I'm evoking the river that they love. Australians aren't very good at talking about emotional things. <laughs> it's a bit different from the United States. And so there was there's been a lot of appreciation for me evoking river love. So yes, a long, slow writing journey. The journey writing was much harder than the journey walking. Uh Maya, I think this is a good time to ask you if you would be willing to read a piece from your book. Sure, sure. Um... It's interesting, um, just a little bit more on how I, I wrote the book. It, it, um, I structured the book as a, as, a, as a story of the days. So there were um, 22 days, so um, the first day, the second day, the third day, and so forth. A, a, an easy way to convey my story. But um, it was because the book was so personal and so personally raw and so meaningfully meaningful for me I, I didn't know how to expose myself and something happened right near the end of my writing process when I realized I needed to write about the nights of my journey so the nights are well the, the night is an interesting time isn't it you know we see the edges of things there's mystery, there's it's a time where our psyche, our ancient psyche registers danger and mystery. When I started writing about the nights, that's when I could really bring the, the dream life, the mythic life of my journey into words. So I'll read a little fragment of the 18th night, and this was um, quite high up in our journey when we just um, uh, seen an, an enormous dam is on the river and uh, um, yes, anyway, I'll write I'll, I'll, I'll just read a little bit Yes. the 18th night 
begun to fathom the work of telling the truth, because the well of truth descends deeper every night. To get to the bottom of the where I will trust I can hold my breath and last longer than the night before. Some nights I can breathe underwater. Submerged, I ask, how old are you? Water, all water, is formed when stars coming to the end of their life explode. In the unimaginable heat and the immense pressure, all the heavy elements come into being. When stars go supernova, stardust plumes over the universe. Elements spread wide and water molecules dance through the vacuum. Here in this corner of the galaxy, around this sun, stardust and gravity joined to make a planet. In among that stardust was water. More water has come here over billions of years by way of meteors, ice-encrusted comets, but that's it. Water is not made on this planet. It is cleansed and purified by the cycles of Earth, by the way temperature changes it from ice to liquid to gas. But it's the same water going round and round and round. Most of me is water. Most of me is a substance cycled through all living things yet unchanged for billions of years. I am, it appears, very, very old. The mind bows to the body. Together they rise. So, yes, that's a little fragment from the 18th night. Uh, with water, I adore swimming. Water is, I'm a water sign, my natural home. But it really... It really was a great meditation on both rivers and waters, this, this journey. You write, I had to make the river for myself. And mm. I would say the river made you a writer and a poet. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I think, I think the, river, the river did. It was um, trying... <laughs> Striving to um, match the river's grace, the river's wisdom, the river's deep, deep knowledge. Uh, to do justice to those things is what pushed me to do as well as I could. And so that you're absolutely right. That's not some metaphor. You're you're starting there. It's it's very very true. I wonder if each of us spent 22 nights, 22 days walking, we would become painters and writers and photographers. I wonder if she holds that grace. Well, I do... I do feel, uh, you know, I, I listened to your beautiful interview with Martin Tractel recently, and this, for me, this book is both about my grief at days for for the beauty of my world, and um, 
I think that's what immersion in nature teaches us, is to become creative like the world is creative, to, to express our, um, our love for the beauty by joining the beauty. And um, so I, I, I love what you say. When you talk about, um, I had to make the, when you quote me saying that I had to make the river for myself, that really was um, a, a very deep part of it for me is I had to um, join with the creativity of the river in order to, to write this. And um, doing that was a very strange and um, a very precious thing to 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 come to to know. So that writing was not something that I was doing alone. Writing was something that I was collaborating with my place in 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 creating. So yeah, it's a very different. Uh, and for me now, it's um, the essential thing. And I'm actually studying a PhD, looking at that that particular experience and its history through the ta- through time in poetics and philosophy and so forth. And yes, it's um, intriguing and an enchanting phenomenon. So the river wrote herself through you. Well, I've been re- I've been living alongside this river for. All my life I've been drinking the water from the taps, and the water from the taps is this river, a big dam on this river, up, uh, um, close to its source. I am, literally, 70% of me is the river that I was speaking about, because 70% of our bodies is water. Mm-hmm. I am more river than just about anything else, so how can I even say that the river didn't rise it? You know, when you when you flip things around like that, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting how much things change. There's a Native American saying that you know that says, "Know where your water comes from," and mm-hmm. you went really deep in knowing what the water mm-hmm. the water that makes you where the water that makes you comes from. Yes, I did. I did. I mean, it was so immensely poignant to walk all day, every day, along the river. You know, this river is really quite a a large river when it enters the sea, to the tiniest, tiniest little trickle emerging out of thick, deep sphagnum moss in the high mountains. And this utterly clear, pure water that we collected in our bottles and drank, drank there at the source. Um, it was... That moment was a hinge point in my life. It, it turned everything around. It was like, yes, I'm here. I'm, I'm here exactly where I'm meant to be. My whole life has been leading me to this point. That was the point of the this pilgrimage. This is, what I'm to, this is what I'm meant to be doing. <laughs> yeah. This was the point of the pilgrimage. Yes, yes. I couldn't have driven there. <laughs> right. I just got out of the car and walked, you know, still quite a walk to get to that, that bit deep in the forest and have known anything like what I knew from walking. 
the river. And uh, I, it was interesting. I actually stayed with a friend of mine along the journey at about our halfway point, who's actually a, uh, an environmental philosopher and psychologist. And he said, what's going on for you? It's thematic learning. Your body is doing the learning. Your mind, your intellectual capacity to express what's going on and probably always will be. So just allow your body to lead you, listen to your body and take note of it. And that was that was a very important point on the journey for him to say that to me and to, for me to really trust that, that it was the walking itself that changed me, that, that grew my heart to, to try and meet this land. Yeah. It was 12 years ago, but I, I still, it still was the most powerful experience of my life. Well, you're from a generation and a place where you became conscious of climate change uh, as an absolute reality at the age of seven. And, and therefore, yeah. as you say yourself, you... you set out to learn, your life is very much about setting out to learn how is this change to be lived. Yes, beautifully said, yes. That's absolutely true, I haven't mentioned that, but it, it, I had lived a lot of my life in a sort of almost catatonic state of grief around the state of the world and what to do and what humans were meant to do and how to do it, but walking the river, involving myself with something so much larger than the merely human, actually gave me so much peace and faith, because I saw, well, we humans are this strange, broken, messy, damaged mammal, beautiful mammal, but, but, but damaged, you know, the whole process um, is a fraught one, and it's one that has really gone off the rails in the last few hundred years. That we could see ourselves as separate from the Earth is um, a, a disaster and a lie. And um, walking the river really helped me see the vastness of the world and go, well, yes, a lot of mess, um, but deep old wisdom below that. And all the elements of my body will be cycled back into this vast, beautiful system. And nothing is lost. Nothing dies. It just changes. And I can be sad for our human culture now, but I can have real faith in life itself and evolution. So, I once was... Um, Something so much bigger than me has given me faith. Mm. If that makes any sense at all. I don't know about saying that it makes sense, but I would say that uh, sensually I feel the same way. Yes. I quote you... Yes, speak, speak. Just in that silence, I was watching a huge flock of, what do we call king parrots, these giant parrots, bright red and 
green and they flew across the mountain, in front of the mountains on this cloudy... It was very beautiful. <laughs> Lovely morning, isn't it? I, I quote you, let the knowledge of where you live guide your behavior. How has the knowledge of where you live, which you take in so deeply, how has it guided your behavior in the last 12 years? Well, I now live on the banks of the river in a small village, of, and many people I live around are very like-minded. I grow a lot of my food, and the food that I can't grow I get from local farms. Um, I built a small home out of local sustainable timber. And, um, I'm very interested in creating culture here, you know, with the children, with um, the old people listening to the stories of this place, the people's stories, the animal stories, the plant stories. Slowly, slowly helping to grow a culture of uh, uh, that strives towards um, becoming indigenous again. This place is inhabited by hunter-gatherers. We can't do that now. But we can live here and we can farm here and we can care for the land. Um, I've, I've had to sort of give up on the city. I did work, as, as I said, as, as you said, as an urban designer trying to transform the cities into efficient uh, things, ecological, sane and beautiful places. But money, we're still in the fall of money and late capitalism and until that all falls over, there's not much I don't think we can do. <laughs> But, we, but people everywhere can come home to the land where they live and live as, um, live as beautifully as they can and, and sing, sing the land, sing up the land with their communities and with the more than human world that they find themselves in. Do you have friends who are indigenous to the place where you are and who can show you how to remember your own indigenous self? Uh, are you talking about um, Wurundjeri people? Yes. Traditional Abor Aboriginal people? Yes, yes. Well, okay. Um, I could... How do I answer that? Um, the Wurundjeri people here now some of whom are great friends of mine, um, are very busy now because people are starting to recognise their importance of the knowledge that they still hold. And um, so there's a lot happening now with the sort of slow revival of language and, um, and culture. So, so those sorts of things are happening, but... But there's other friends who are attempting to become Indigenous. So there's people who attend, know a lot about the plants and the animals, um, and who have the time, more time really, than a lot of the, the Wurundjeri people, to actually 
get in touch with the place and live it up because it's all about how you live. So, you know, um, so the process of becoming Indigenous is becoming Indigenous again for people of different cultural backgrounds. That's, that's a project that I think we can all engage in. And yes, it's sometimes politically fraught and complex and difficult because of the, because of the grief and because of the shame and because mm-hmm. of everything that's been unspoken and because of the apologies not said. So I think every single person on the planet has a process to go through with grief of what we've lost and the um, in order to step through that grief into what we love. Grief blocks, holds us back from what we can what we can do. Um, and a lot of people keep their distance from the idea of indigeneity or of indigenous people because of that pain. And I my journey through writing the book and other other things has very much been to try and sit with that pain. Um, make make amends <laughs> and start remaking culture wherever you are. Mm-hmm. by attending to the more than human world. Beautiful, beautiful. I uh, was thinking that uh, perhaps in closing you could speak to us about what you praise. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, what do I praise? Thank you so much for being with us today. I really loved our conversation. Thank you, me too.